0: I love Jared Allen. Fear the The Fro. fro. Pow! With the right hand. That's our boy Bob Schmidt. (laughs) Jared Allen with authority. This is the Fear the Fro podcast, a Cleveland Cavaliers and NBA podcast with Bob Schmidt. Nobody's going to subscribe. Welcome to the Fear the Fro podcast, a Cavalier and NBA podcast hosted by me, Bob Schmidt, the voice of Fox Sports Radio, and a lifelong Cleveland Cavalier fan. This is is episode number four, still very early on in this vanity project where I've decided to launch a podcast to talk about all things Cavs and all things NBA from a Cleveland Cavalier fan perspective. So, we are here now on episode four. You can follow the Twitter account at FearTheFroPod, Instagram at FearTheFroPod, the the website, fropod.com, or subscribe and rate the podcast. Please don't subscribe or rate the podcast if you hate it. That certainly won't help. Now, to the Cavs, to what's going on with the Cavs. Now that Summer League's done, we're in that sort of dead zone between now and training camp where there are still things to happen, but they will be slow moving. We know a few things. We spoke about last week Colin Sexton and his extension. That's something that will likely, we'll have a lot more answers on that between now and when training camp begins on September 28th. The other questions to be answered are what happens with the two way contracts? What happens with Isaiah Hartenstein? And finally, will anything be done to address the desire for wing help? Now, the Cavs this offseason went in with two big priorities in free agency. They did not have money to spend beyond the mid level and some minor maneuverings, minimum contracts, etc. But what they did do, the first thing they did was they addressed the backup point guard spot. They traded Torian Prince and a second round pick to Minnesota and brought back Ricky Rubio, who has one season left in his deal. He makes 17 million. He's a backup point guard for us, but who knows? If he serves that role well, he could stick around in that kind of veteran limited role off the bench capacity that we had a guy like Delavado for. Now they're very different players, of course. But my point is simply, he will get minutes. The priority is Darius Garland and Colin Sexton. And Rubio is seemingly a guy who can compliment either. So, to that point, need addressed. Now we move on to the wing help. The wing help was the area that the Cavs, they didn't really address it. In the draft, we went with Mobley, who's a front court guy. So we hit free agency. And the Cavs were linked to several different people. There was, of course, Doug McDermott, who signed for more money than the Cavs had to offer. There was Firkin Korkmas from Philadelphia, who ultimately decided to go back to Philadelphia and stay with the Sixers. And then we just saw, one by one, guys get plucked off the board or land with contenders, Malik Monk and various other people who perhaps we had some desire for. So now we reach that point where very little is left On the free agent market. Unrestricted free agent market, restricted free agent market, or otherwise. Svee Makailuk is out there. There's been some rumors about possibly bringing him in on a deal close to the minimum. Now, Chris Fedor had a great article about Dylan Windler. I think a lot of Cavs fans tend to overlook Windler at this point because he's just been so snake-bit from a health perspective. But I do think it's important to remember that Dylan Windler, hypothetically, would serve exactly the type of role that we're looking for. He has some size. He's brought in primarily to score. He was always meant to be a guy who could get his own look from three-point land. And while statistically, if you were to look at his stats and the games he's played, you'd say that, okay, well, he's been a disappointment. I would just urge Cavs fans not to forget the following. There was a brief period. He finally... Started to play games, started to get some momentum, started to play. He strung together a nice little stretch. In the games, Dylan Windler got over 20 minutes per game. He averaged 49% from the floor, 46% from three-point land, and 80% from the line on 66% true shooting. It was only 10 games. It's a small sample. I understand that. There were also two outliers in there, the games where... Windler went 9-for-9 from three-point land over two games. So I'm not saying that that's the type of production you could expect if he consistently got over 20 minutes. But what I am saying is, when he did get over 20 minutes a game, he showed that with time and with opportunity, this was a guy who could contribute. If he can just stay on the floor, his confidence is going to rise and rise, and he could find himself being a contributor. So me personally, while I know it's not the flashy thing to just hope for development from within. I'm not going to be devastated if the Cavs don't add somebody with a higher profile who can provide wing help. I would be perfectly happy bringing in Svee on a near-minimum deal because it doesn't seem like the guys who are left, they're not going to be high-priced guys. The Cavs would get in the mix on any of those people, but it's really just, do you want to commit a roster spot to them, and are they even good or prolific enough to unseat the guys that we already have in the rotation? Now, that brings us to when we start to speculate about guys who we would have to trade to acquire. Because, of course, if there's nobody worthwhile on the unrestricted or restricted free agent market, well, then you have to figure out a way to bring a guy in. And the guys that have been rumored this week are Memphis Grizzlies players, two of them, in fact. Dylan Brooks and Kyle Anderson. Now, there's a reason both of these guys have been rumored in trades. And a large part of that reason is because of their contract. The secondary part is because, honestly, they're limited players. They're good players. They provide value. I would not mind having either of them. But they're not guys I would break the bank for. Dylan Brooks, 25 years old. He's been in the league four years. Now, he's consistently, even right out of the gate, he was a second-round pick out of Oregon. He's averaged around 28 to 29 minutes a game from the very beginning which is a good sign. If you can do that as a second-round pick, that's fantastic. Dylan Brooks is solid. But Dylan Brooks is also a bit of a chucker who shoots very low percentages on relatively high volume. And just to put that in context, last season, the season before, this is a guy who took five and a half three-point attempts per game. Now, that may not sound like a lot, but Colin Sexton... Has never even taken over four and a half three point attempts per game, and Darius Garland has never done over five. So, this is a guy, mind you, who didn't even start all that time. He's played solid minutes, nearly 30 a night, but he gets shots up, is my point, on relatively poor percentages. For people who knock Colin Sexton about how he shot 37% from three and how, you know, the next step in his development is to become a slightly more efficient three-point shooter who's willing to take them at a little bit higher volume, well, Dylan Brooks is a guy who takes those shots at a higher volume and makes only 35% of his three-point looks over the course of you know, his career. This is not a guy who's a marksman. He's a volume scorer who can get hot, who's streaky, and who last year, yes, he averaged 14 points a game, but he did it on nearly 15 attempts from the floor. He's consistently, despite the fact people look at him as a score, his value has actually become more on the defensive end. He's improved on defense. He's definitely a hustle, effort guy. But that's probably largely to compensate for the fact that the reason Dylan Brooks has always been viewed as a fringe starter type is because he's a rel- relatively inefficient offensive player. He's a big negative if you look at, at box plus minus or value-over-replacement player. His, his win shares are consistently negative, but his defensive impact has gotten better and better as the seasons have gone on. So he has value. But Desmond Bain, the Grizzlies took Desmond Bain, who just destroyed in the summer league, shot over 60% from three, and looks to be the type of efficient contributor across the board that Brooks has just not been able to string together. So they may prioritize Bain and move Brooks simply because he has some value and the clock is ticking on his contract at this point. In a vacuum, would I like to add Brooks? Sure. But the problem lies in the deals that are being suggested. Now, there are times I like to think that I'm fair-minded about the Cavs. I can acknowledge that, okay, Jared Allen, bit of an overpay. Doesn't mean I'm not happy to have him, but I can look at the situation and the market and say, okay, Yeah, if I'm being fair, the Cavs probably paid Jared Allen too much. But then we get to this point in the summer where people are desperate to address a hole which we failed to address, and the suggestions on trades seem excessive and almost unreasonable to me. People are talking about what can the Cavs do to get Dylan Brooks or Kyle Anderson. Now, Dylan Brooks, we've already kind of gone over him. Kyle Anderson, he's been in the league seven years. He's 28 years old. He's not exactly young. He's going into the last year of his contract, though, which is why, of course, he would be rumored in trade talks. I like Kyle Anderson, personally, as a player. I think he's one of those guys, he isn't a high-usage player, but he contributes across the board. This is a guy who, over the course of his career, shoots over 48% from the floor. Now, comparatively to Dylan Brooks, I mean, he destroys him in those efficiency analytics. The reason why I like him is because he can. he's similar to Larry, he can do a bit of everything. He can score. He can shoot okay. I mean, he's not a marksman from three-point land, but he did do reasonably decently last year. He shot 36% from three-point land. It's not as if he's a massive liability there. And last season was his most prolific season. He got a larger role because of all the injuries that had piled up on the wing, and even Morant missed a little bit of time. He saw his averages rise to 12.5 points a game, six rebounds, and four assists. Which is solid. Over the course of his career, this is a guy who's, you know, basically like a five, five, and four guy or somewhere around there. Six and a half, four and and two, excuse me. So it, it's not as if Kyle Anderson is some guy who's gonna blow you away with his numbers, but Kyle Anderson is a glue guy. You could plug him in amongst higher usage offensive options, and he'd be solid. I would today, without hesitation, trade Osman for Kyle Anderson. It would relieve the Cavs of the commitment they made to Osmond, their contracts are basically equivalent, and perhaps it would work for Memphis because Anderson's likely going to walk away after this season anyway, and Osmond they could have for a little bit longer period. And he's got a higher offensive upside, in theory, if what you're looking for is a volume guy. But, you know, if I'm Memphis, candidly, if I'm Memphis, I would turn that deal down at this point. I think Anderson showed enough last year, and I actually think he makes a positive impact on winning. Now, the reason he's being shopped is, of course, because he's in the final year of a contract. He signed a four-year contract with the Grizzlies after his rookie deal ended in San Antonio, and now he's about to hit unrestricted free agency next summer. So, similar to the way the Cavs would possibly shop Larry Nance Jr., they may be looking to get something before he reaches that point where he has to be paid as a player approaching 30 years old on a roster that is largely filled with very young players. So those are the two players the Cavs have been talked about possibly wanting. Dylan Brooks, 25 years old. Kyle Anderson, 28 years old. Here's the part I take issue with. The rumors of what the Cavs would have to send back to get them. Now you'll see suggestions out there that the Cavs should give Larry Nance Jr. and a protected lottery pick. The protections are vague. Maybe they mean, maybe they even mean top 10 protected. Maybe they mean top five protected. Maybe they mean complete lottery protected. I hate these suggestions for a handful of reasons. The first one, you don't give away lottery picks. If it's completely protected, if it's a first round pick, one to 14, then yeah, maybe we discuss that. You keep seeing these suggestions of like, oh, you know, give a top three protected lotto pick for Cam Reddish or give a top three protected lotto pick for one of these other guys who is buried in the rotation of his respective teams. You don't do that when you're a team like Cleveland who hasn't seen the playoffs in a handful of years. It's just far too risky. And it's easy to say it now when we look at the team going into the season and thinking, okay, this could be the year they make the leap from on the outside of the playoffs to possibly contending for one of the late seeds or the play-in. You do not move lottery picks until you actually see the product on the floor and you know that that's a very distinct possibility. It's just far too risky. Can you imagine if we reached this season's draft lottery, we won the third overall pick, and somebody else held the rights to the Cleveland Cavaliers pick. Somebody else could have gotten Evan Mobley because the previous offseason we decided, well, we're right there. We're going to turn the corner. This is the time we make the leap. You just don't know if it's going to happen. There are still holes in this squad, and it's very young. I think all the players are progressing on an individual level. Until the team has some sort of identity that's leading to wins, we should not be seriously humoring trading lottery picks, potential lottery picks, for guys who are fringe starters. At best, Dylan Brooks and Kyle Anderson are the weak fifth starter in a lineup that the Cavs roll out. Realistically, they're probably just strong bench players. You don't move lottery picks for that. You don't even arguably move first-round picks for that. But I would humor the discussion if the Cavs were a contender who they knew their first-round pick was going to be a late one, and they were like, well, these are the guys who could potentially put us over the top, then so be it. But the Cavs should not be dealing lottery picks for anyone other than a difference maker. It is far too risky. And until there's some wins, there's no reason to think. Sometimes I hear this mentality that like, well, you know, we don't need more young guys. We need young guys until those young guys lead to wins. That's just the reality. I'm sure that's not what anybody wants. That's not what I want either. There's a difference between talented player and talented player who impacts winning. And that's why we're having the whole debate about Colin Sexton, is because nobody denies that he's talented. There's just a section of the fan base who feels that he doesn't command big money because they're skeptical of his ability to play winning basketball. Here we are at this point where we're hoping to make the turn towards competitive, and there's suggestions that we should move Larry Nance Jr. and a protected lotto pick for the ability to take on Dylan Brooks and or Kyle Anderson, that would be a terrible deal. For one, Dylan Brooks only has two seasons left. He's basically a contractual equivalent to Larry Nance, only slightly higher paid. Roughly 12.5 left this year, and then 11.5 left next year. Larry Nance Jr. has 10.5 this year, 9.5 next year. Now, I understand Larry Nance Jr. may need to be traded at some point. And it's not because I don't love Larry, but realistically, he plays a backup role. He's one of the older players on a team that's built around youth, and he's playing behind that youth, and he's approaching that age. It's going to be his last big payday. He's going to hit unrestricted free agency in 2023 at the age of 30, and he's going to be looking to cash in. The Cavs, at that point, will be trying to figure out, okay, what's Garland worth? What's a coral worth? We have a bit of a glut of potential youthful talent in the front court. We've got Allen. We've got Mobley. We still have Love, who's not youthful talent, but he is going to fill a role, whether it's 15 minutes a night, whether it's 25 minutes a night. Assuming the guy can be healthy, he's going to eat some minutes there. You've got Dean Wade and you've got Larry Nance. Larry Nance, third best option in the front court at this point. I mean, he's probably the second best until Mobley develops. But long term, the Cavs have a tendency. When these big men, when they approach 30, we overpay them when they hit 30. Love's a perfect example. Cavs probably can't afford to do that with Larry Nash Jr. if they realistically expect to be competitive. So they may look in the next two seasons, weaponize his contract, trade it to someone because he can help a team win. He does have value. He's just an odd fit with the trajectory of this team moving forward. So I am open to the idea that as much as I love Larry, he may be traded somewhere in the next two seasons. I likely would hesitate to even trade Larry straight up for Dylan Brooks. I probably would do it because Dylan Brooks is a little bit younger and I think we have more issues on the wing than we have in the front court. But that would be the type of deal that I would be open to. The moment Memphis says, oh, and add in a first-round pick too, I would hang up the phone immediately. I would not give a first-round pick for anyone who doesn't play a substantial starter-level role in this team's future moving forward. Now, of all the speculation that's been out there, the only guy that I would consider moving a first-round pick for, that I've heard, would possibly be Cam Reddish. And even then, it would have to be highly protected. Because you don't overpay for someone who the Hawks likely can't even afford to keep. They can try to leverage his restricted free agency rights, certainly. But with Hunter there, with Jalen Johnson there, John Collins having just got paid, and... Gallo still on the books for another two seasons. They have a glut of frontcourt talent. Wait that out till restricted free agency and try to get a sign-and-trade where you give back a minimal asset. Don't give away a lottery pick. It's insanity. So I'm hopeful that these rumors are just nonsense and it's just people who are unhappy with the current state of the roster and who are shuffling pieces in this hypothetical way where they're saying, oh, well, let's give this and this for that. Because even a lottery pick with no Larry Nance Jr., for a guy like Dylan Brooks, that is a big stretch. I don't know how much more improvement we think we're going to see from him. This is a guy who's already, he's had plenty of opportunities from a usage and showcasing standpoint. He's a volume shooter who can't substantially raise his efficiency. While he could be a solid defender, we have a coro. We're trying to find somebody who can space the floor reliably. And this is a guy who's struggling to shoot a better three point percentage than Colin Sexton. I mean, he takes more of them, but he shoots them at a worse percentage. 35, 36 percent, that's a solid three point percentage. I have no issues with that. But that's not what I would call a marksman. And especially not if they have no discretion about when to take those shots. We will see what happens. And I'm sure we're going to discuss more what to do with Larry Nance Jr., but this is not it. To me, the only way these deals are acceptable is. If it's straight up, Osman for Kyle Anderson, I would do that in a second. But I don't think Memphis would have any interest in it. I fear the frog. <laughs> the next story I wanted to hit is an NBA one, but one that has interesting tentacles that spread throughout the league simply due to how high profile the agent involved is. Nerlins Noel and his lawsuit against Rich Paul and Clutch Sports. Now, for those of you who missed this story, it goes back nearly five years. Just a quick recap of the backstory. Nerlens Noel, prospect out of Kentucky, enters the league, drafted by the Pelicans, but immediately traded on draft day to the Philadelphia 76ers. Everybody expected for him to be a, a big center in the NBA, a great defensive player in college, a guy who could conceivably anchor the middle for a competitive team for years to come. Well, it didn't work out in Philadelphia in large part because Joel Embiid exists. In 2016-2017, around the trade deadline, he is traded. The Sixers had three years with Noel. He was injured most of the first year. He was playing very well his second and third season, but then his role diminished. So in year four in the NBA, the Sixers say, well, you know, we're not going to keep him. We'll trade him at the deadline in a deal very reminiscent of what we saw with Jared Allen. It's not that the Nets didn't think Allen was a good player, but they simply weren't going to pay him a big salary, and they moved him while they could get an asset for him. So the Sixers dumped Noel to the Mavericks for Justin Anderson and a second-round pick, and Mark Cuban and the Dallas Mavericks had secured restricted free agency rights for a player who was only 22 years old and who could anchor the middle for years to come. Now this is where things went south for Nerlens. Entering free agency in 2017, he was represented by a man named Happy Walters. The only guy Happy Walters represents now is R.J. Hampton of the Orlando Magic, whereas Rich Paul is a veritable who's who of players in the NBA. Anthony Davis, John Wall, uh, Eric Bledsoe, LeBron James, Ben Simmons, Draymond Green, Lonzo Ball. It's a huge list. Darius Garland, of course, on that list. In 2017, Mark Cuban goes into free agency, says, We want you here, Nerlens. We'll give you, four years, $70 million. That's almost $18 million a season to tie him up for the next four seasons. Noel, he goes out to L.A. to work out. Finds himself working out with Ben Simmons. Then, at a party, he's seated next to Rich Paul, super agent, who says to him that he's a $100 million player and that if he fires Happy Walters and hires him, then he will get him $100 million the next summer. So that's what Noel does. He fires Happy Walters. Instead of accepting the Mavericks offer, he turns it down and he takes the qualifying offer, playing for a relatively modest $4 million the next season in Dallas. It does not go well. He gets hurt, has a hand injury, he plays a very limited role, and his numbers plummet. Goes from secured payday, goes to summer free agency in 2018, he gets absolutely decimated. Signing a two-year, $3.75 million deal with the Oklahoma City Thunder. That's less than $2 million a season after walking away from $18 million per season. I'm sure he's not happy about this. He goes to play with Russell Westbrook and Paul George. He plays behind Steven Adams. He does fairly well in a limited role. Now, he only played... 13 to 14 minutes a game, but when he did, he was impactful. He had a player option on year two, and he thought, okay, this is my chance to get a little more money, to get into a role that's a little bigger. There are rumors, even ones that Woj reports in June of 2019, that Nerlens Noel, who just opted out of this deal with the Thunder, is set to re-sign with them for a three-year deal. In all likelihood, Woj got this information from Rich Paul or someone in that camp, or at least that's the insinuations in the lawsuit. And because this information is out there, Nerlens alleges that teams who otherwise would have offered him a deal did not put offers out there. He's left a ton of money on the table at this point. He's being outpaid by guys like Aaron Baines, Ed Davis, Kyle O'Quinn, Brooke Lopez, Amir Johnson, Zaza Pachulia, Javel McGee, Greg Monroe, they've all, Alex Len, they've all signed for deals larger than Nerland's Noel. I can imagine he's not happy. He's even less happy after he speaks to his former coach, Brett Brown, who tells him the Sixers had been interested in a reunion to bring Noel back to back up Joel Embiid, and, and he had not even gotten a return phone call from Rich Paul or anyone at Clutch. Mind you, all this is from Noel's lawsuit, which is gonna be presented from his perspective. It behooves Nerlens to present Rich Paul and Clutch as if they did nothing. He's trying to recoup $58 million in lost wages. So he has to make this, the case that they were grossly negligent and incompetent and treated him as a complete afterthought. Otherwise, the settlement that they ultimately come to will be minimal to nothing. Because in the end, it boils down to the idea that when he was represented by Happy Walters, an offer was on the table for four for $70 million, and he instructed his agent, Rich Paul, after he fired Walters to communicate to the Mavericks that he was turning down that extension. Now, it was because of Rich Paul's advice, but ultimately, the agent is supposed to do what the player tells them to do. He might have a case in regards to not communicating with teams, not calling back teams who are ready to make substantial offers. He could see those kind of lost wages. I could see if it makes it to court and he can prove that type of stuff. But he's got zero chance of recouping the $58-plus plus million dollars. That's on him, and he's never going to see that money. And that's unfortunate because I like Nerlens, but this story will be interesting to see how it progresses because Rich Paul is trying to get commission on a deal that Nerlens is saying— listen, I handled this one on my own. You ignored me for years. Now, not only am I not going to pay you the commission and you can file your grievance with the league, I'm going to sue you to get back all the money you cost me because I wasn't high priority enough. We'll see how this all plays out, but I can't wait to see what Rich Paul's response is to this, legally or otherwise. Fear the frog. Finally, one other story I wanted to cover was one that, made its way through the podcast world this week when Woj dropped a podcast with the president of the NBA Players Association, C.J. McCollum, who recently just took over for Chris Paul. And he discussed a ton of things. It's a great listen of a podcast. It's 40 minutes. They cover a bunch of stuff, super teams in the NBA, the challenges facing the league, the stuff that C.J. McCollum doesn't like. And what to expect in the future. And specifically to the Woj podcast, there was one section I found, well, it was something I wanted to respond to. I found it interesting. This is it. This is CJ McCollum on the Woj pod. Based on the contract structure, based on the deals, I think
1: the fact that you make more money staying is, is very enticing for a lot of players, especially from a comfort standpoint. You just get comfortable in a certain type of situation where you you don't yearn for or need change. And I think a lot of players have gotten to that point where you see like in B, you see these players with years left and they're like, give me the extension. Like I'll take it now. Like what what am I waiting on? And in the event that things don't work out, they can always kind of work something out later. But I think it's a double edged sword because fans media like sometimes complain about, you know, players wanting to leave. But what about when, when teams want to get rid of a player? What about that aspect of it? What about me seeing, you know, guys get traded, you know, around Christmas? <laughs> you know what I mean? What about, what about teams having a guy under contract waiting until free agency's over to decide that they don't want to renew his contract? Like those are some serious situations that are never really talked about and should also be discussed. I've seen, seen the Kendrick Nunn situation. He was a, uh, going to be a free agent they basically waited till the money dried up right i mean you correct me if i'm wrong has Mm -hmm. this has have you seen this happening in the league and not being discussed at all where they talk about players forcing their way out player movement but then what about the manipulation that goes into some of these situations where uh, teams are waiting for the market to dry up before they release a player's rights
0: this part is specifically the part i had the biggest issue with it starts out discussing how a player would want to re-sign with his team for the most money because he's comfortable in this situation. Guys like Embiid, guys like McCollum, none of that phased me. But we get to the end with the Kendrick Nunn situation, and C.J. McCollum holds it up as an example of teams abusing the power and how this needs to be readdressed because it's unfair to players. Now, some backstory to that Kendrick Nunn situation. You can't look at it as the end result of what happened because there's no disputing that. Kendrick Nunn entered the summer as a restricted free agent. The Miami Heat extended a qualifying offer, meaning that they had the rights to match any offer that was out there. As is normally the case, teams don't go out of their way to chase guys who are restricted free agents because there's an expectation that the team that holds them will match any reasonable offer. And in order to lure those guys away, you have to overpay. But the specific context of the Heat situation needs to be considered because that's what C.J. McCollum is ignoring. He's positioning his statement as if the Heat, they knew going ahead that they were going to rescind his qualifying offer and send him out into unrestricted free agency after the market had dried up where he would have to take a very minimal deal with the Lakers because there just wasn't money out there. But that's not what happened. What happened this summer was the Heat went into the summer with a very clear objective. increase their chances of winning a title. Everyone knew going into the summer that they were chasing Kyle Lowry. But the problem with chasing Kyle Lowry is that the Miami Heat did not have full control over it. They couldn't simply give him whatever money he wanted because they did not have the cap space available to do it. It required the participation of the Toronto Raptors to engage in a sign-in trade, they went in hoping to land a better point guard than none. That much is true, but there were zero guarantees that would happen. What happens if the Toronto Raptors say, well, we won't take back Goran Dragic, and no deal is consummated for Kyle Lowry? If they had not extended a qualifying offer to Kendrick Nunn, he would have been gone at that point, before the Heat even knew what was going to happen. It is totally reasonable for the Miami Heat because there was zero guarantee they could get Lowry. You don't say, oh, well, we have hopes that we can get better at this position with no guarantee, but you know what? Let's let go of the sure thing that we already have in place. Kendrick Nunn definitely got screwed here, and that's unfortunate for him as a player, but it's certainly not an abuse of the system. The other thing that C.J. McCollum talks about is this statement in particular jumps out. He's talking about how players will resign with their own situation because they're comfortable, and why shouldn't they take the guaranteed money? But then he makes this caveat. In the event that things don't work out, they can always kind of work something out later. When a player takes the most money possible, and this applies to Giannis, this applies to Damian Lillard, it's great for the player when they do that. It's great that they get to have this massive salary, but The very real possibility is that the team will be so financially hamstrung by having to commit such a large portion of their cap to that one player that it will be extremely difficult to compete. Now, it can happen. Milwaukee just won a title. But you could argue that they're overpaying all of their top stars. Not Giannis, of course. Giannis, he's one of those guys who... The amount of money you can pay him, it will never be enough by the cap. But Middleton and Drew Holiday are making substantial contracts because that's how you have to get players there. The reality is, though, what he just dismisses like, oh, well, it'll all work out. If, you know, if they want to leave later, they can address it at that time. That never works out for the team. And at another point in the podcast, let me just play that clip.
1: There's no issues when someone works at Apple or someone works at Google and they leave when their contract is up. And I think the same should be said uh, about the NBA, about the NFL,
0: the MLB. I just want to clarify that in the context CJ said that, I have zero problem with it. If a player is an unrestricted free agent, then by all means, he should be free to go and do whatever he wants. But what I do take issue with is another trend that he mentioned earlier. He said this. In the event that things don't work out they can always kind of work something out later. Player movement now is not limited to unrestricted free agency. You've got guys like James Harden dictating where they want to go and who they're willing to be traded to while under contract. If you're going to point to restricted free agency as an impediment to player empowerment and something that shouldn't exist, which, of course, as a Cavs fan, I hate, the idea that leveraging restricted free agency rights is wrong, but forcing your way out after signing a Supermax that nine times out of ten decimates the team, the New Orleans Pelicans dumping Anthony Davis, the Houston Rockets dumping James Harden, potentially the Portland Trailblazers having to sell Damian Lillard off at 10 cents on the dollar. That's disingenuous. And again, to be fair, C.J. McCollum didn't really dive into defending superstars who forced their way out. I more take issue with the idea that he pointed to restricted free agency and the way teams rescind qualifying offers sometimes as this problem that doesn't get covered enough. But he skirted the issue of how devastating it could be for a team who pays a guy the most allowable money they possibly can only for that player to turn around and say, well, I want out. I don't care how it impacts your ability to compete in the future because I'm about me right now. And the goals of the team are secondary to that. It's a two-way street. There's always going to be give and take. And I pray that they don't change the way that restricted free agency works simply because occasionally a guy like Kendrick Nunn finds himself losing money because of it. Because I don't think there was ill intentions there. And I think that's a relevant thing to consider when you're pointing to that as some sort of example of an abuse of the system. And that's it. That's episode four of the Fear the Fro podcast. Please follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. It's all at Fear the Fro pod. And check out the website, fropod.com. Like it, subscribe it, rate it, and be back next time. I'm Bob Schmidt, the voice of Fox Sports, lifelong Cavs fan, with Fear the Fro, a Cavs and NBA podcast. See you next time. Okay, that's enough. Stop it! This has been another Fear the Fro podcast. That was pathetic. If you enjoyed what you heard today, put it on the highlight reel. Please consider subscribing. Check out fropod.com for more Cavaliers and NBA coverage. That's what's on display here.